0: Hello everyone, this is Karan Takar, and welcome to the Zenergy Podcast. Over the past decade, India has done an impressive job of integrating renewable energy into its energy mix. For this Fulbright Podcast series, I sought to investigate the enabling factors and potential of India's global leadership in renewable energy, with the focus on solar. This Fulbright series is broken down into four seasons. This season, we look at the next set of key technologies and regulations integral for unlocking India's continued renewable energy success at the system level. It includes conversations with leading regulators and thought leaders across energy management, storage, transmission, and distribution. In this episode, I will be speaking with Rahul Tangia. Leads the Energy and Sustainability Group at Brookings India. Dr. Tangia helped found the Smart Grid Task Force of the Government of India as well as the India Smart Grid Forum, a multi stakeholder body chaired by the Ministry of Power. Dr. Tangia is a leading voice in quantifying the system level costs of renewable energy integration into the grid. And in this conversation, we discuss some of his views on this subject. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tangia.
1: I think this is a interesting and complex space. And while I've been trying to learn for several years on some of the nuances, I think the bottom line is nobody exactly knows. Because the first question that comes to mind is, is this any different for India than any other country which is aiming to expand its renewable energy portfolio, its basket? And renewables has three have three challenges worldwide. The first is, in general, people used to believe they're expensive. That's not necessarily the case anymore. The second thing is they're variable. So, this is called variable RE. Take it when you can, when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. And the third one is their location dependence. Solar is relatively better spread, but wind especially is very location specific in India, the US, and most other countries. India has not yet, for example, done much offshore wind. And so, the first question is what is different or special about India? And the Quick sort of high-level thoughts are, one, well, every country is different, but India has a couple of characteristics that distinguish it or separate it from many of its peers or, or similar countries along their transition trajectory. First is the Indian grid was traditionally very coal-heavy. Somewhere in the order of three quarters last year of electricity generated was from coal The second was India's grid has been relatively weak compared to many other grids. Now, there are many metrics and measures of this, but until recently, there were shortfalls in supply. You actually had a lot more load shedding, as it's called, which is cutting off demand just because you don't have enough supply. That problem has diminished, it has not gone away, but it was also a grid that was reasonably tight in terms of its ability to have buffers and surplus and things like this. So even though now India has had for several years a national grid, just like the U.S., a national grid does not mean one can effortlessly send power from one end to the other infinitely. There are interconnections between regions but they're not very strong, the tie lines as they're called. And that's the same in the U.S., where you have three synchronous areas, Eastern, Western, and ERCOT or Texas, but that doesn't mean you can send any amount of power from Oklahoma to Maine or vice versa. There are limits to that. And those limits are even sharper in India, where a lot of dispatch decisions are taken at a state level, but the interconnections are strong enough Up to a regional level so these are some of the high level thoughts on renewables another small one is that a lot of the growth is in solar power not wind that's probably true Mm -hmm. in much of the world but unlike say germany or california well or at least parts of the u.s a lot Or if not, uh, most overwhelming amount of the growth in solar power has come from grid scale solar parks or solar farms. These are not rooftop feeding into the local grid. It happens Mm -hmm. in India, but much less than in some countries proportionally, and also much less than the targets have asked for so called rooftop or behind the meter renewables. That's another characteristic which has its own implications, both technical and financial.
2: I see. I see. And I was watching a talk that you delivered at the India Smart Utility Week titled Mainstreaming Renewables. And this might be difficult to put a precise yes or no onto, but um, so you stated that having a small fraction of the grid provided by renewable energy is relatively easy. Now, what that, that number is will vary across grids, across countries, across domains, um but my question is do you believe like this threshold is being reached in india where like that small fraction which was easy to control is now being exceeded and we're at the stage where like the threshold limit has been passed per se where now renewables are being integrated more heavily and it's causing a lot more trouble at the grid level
1: so the good news is i believe we're not anywhere close to problematic areas. The quantum of renewables thus far is modest. And even if we look at the target of 175 gigawatts, which may or may not happen by 2022. I don't want to comment on that specifically. But in my mind, it's okay if it doesn't happen by 2022. It may just happen a little bit later. It's still very ambitious and admirable, India's targets. Just to give uh, context on those targets, you have countries, you have states saying, I'll become low carbon or carbon zero in electricity or maybe even in all energy. That's one important nuance by 2030, 2040, or 2050. What that really means is for a developed region, you don't have too much growth of overall energy. You've already got very high consumptions. And so all you need to achieve those is maybe, let's say, if you have 30 years to meet that target, you just need to switch over 3.33% every year, assuming you're at zero. And in 30 years, you'll hit 100% renewables. But For a place like India, the targets announced in late 2014, early 2015 were so high, the 175 gigawatts, that that translated to a 25% annual growth of renewable energy, which is astonishingly high. So even if those targets aren't met in 2022, that's okay. Those numbers are themselves probably manageable. It's a little bit after that when you start to need more fundamental changes in how you look at things. The first would be grid operations, better signaling so that you recognize different electricities are not the same. Time of day pricing is just one of it. And Mm -hmm. the second is the eventual need for storage technologies. So coming to your first point, how much can you handle? It's a spectrum, it's a continuum. It's not as if it's easy or hard, it's just easier or harder. One of the truisms of renewable energy is as you grow the share of VRE in your system, any system worldwide, two things happen. And it's a gradual process. The first is the marginal utility diminishes. So think of it this way. As I add renewables, which are relatively cheap, I'm going to knock off more expensive alternatives. But once the low-hanging fruit is done and the lowest... Uh, easiest to knock off is the variable cost of running existing coal plants more. So the fuel costs of coal, if I switch off my coal plant, I don't save anything on building it because it's already built. But now I save on fuel. That's a very easy one is to one comparison. But once I stop being able to displace expensive coal or mid-price coal, there is still a lot of cheap coal, which is often run of mine or what in India is called pithead coal where you don't have transportation costs, that is much cheaper and harder for renewables to displace at the margin. The second related point on renewables is as you grow more and more, the marginal cost of integrating them rises. So you will eventually need more transmission because whatever you can absorb nearby is done. Because of this time of day dependence of renewables, it peaks solar in the middle of the day, for example. That's very intuitive and obvious. So you first try and absorb it locally, state level, regionally. But once you have, quote unquote, too much, you have to ship it elsewhere. And at some point, either you have to add a lot more transmission. And after that point, even if I had infinite transmission at a national level, my demand and supply may have a mismatch.
2: Okay. That makes sense. Is there, is it possible to like provide a potential range in terms of like this percentage of the grid, if renewables accounted for this like percentage of the energy mix, um, then that's when, or is that, it's just, you can't really put a number on it.
1: It's hard to put a number in part because there are several moving parts. If my grid Mm -hmm looked identical to what it does today, meaning the rest of my grid is well-known, the rest of Mm -hmm. technologies like storage and demand response, smart grid are known, and my load profiles, which include the shape at which I have demand, are static. Then it's easier to make that claim, but there's a feedback loop because just like time of day could impact the value of different generators. So if I have a whole mess of solar, a whole bunch of solar, then that diminishes the value of that solar because all of it becomes available at around noon. But my demand can also respond to time of day signaling. So today's demand peaks in the evening. It's very residential driven, air conditioning load driven. And so Mm -hmm. it's often between 7.30 and 11 p.m. when solar's output is near zero. But what's to say that at least some of our demand can't be shifted through control mechanisms, pricing mechanisms, policy incentives, a behavioral shift, et cetera. And so it's very hard to come up with that number. Though the 175 gigawatt target translated to, assuming a certain growth of demand between 2017 and 2020, uh, which is when we've done some calculations, it was in the order of 20% coming from Ari. 20% seems easy. You can manage the 20% quite easily because you have so-called surplus coal. So in the middle of the day, all you do is you switch off or you lower the outputs. You don't actually switch off a coal plant. It's very expensive to switch on and off a coal plant. But what you do Mm -hmm. do is you lower the output of any given a certain coal plant, what's called coal flexible operations or flexibilization or flexing, and you come Mm -hmm. down to Not 100%, but typically the target is 55% as per government norms. Mm -hmm. So one of the math that you can do is ask yourself, how much does a 55% translate to? And because you still need the coal plants to turn on for the night. So unless you had storage and your demand profile doesn't shift, then you could get an estimate that, okay, in the evening, I got to have this much supply. Solar is not going to cut it. So I need to have my coal plants back at 100%. Technologically, you can go from low to high over a span of a few hours. That's not hard technologically. And therefore, it's quote-unquote doable. But it also has a small cost because when you ramp your coal plants up and down, it has wear and tear operational impacts. And it also lowers their efficiency when they don't operate at 100% loading. But that's okay. That's still a minor hit. It's quantifiable. It's justifiable. It's manageable. But now, Mm -hmm. crude estimates indicate that you only have maybe in the order of another 30, 40, 45 gigawatts of flex capability. So that's the additional VRE that I could have midday, hypothetically, before which I need major changes or new investments in alternative generation. So the first next rung on the ladder would be when you need to start to have. "Quote unquote, something else. The easiest is when I don't need to build anything new other than RE, and I can just manage in my existing grid. Is the rest of it going to be insurmountable? No, it's going to be gradual, increasing over time. How much battery would I need? Well, I only need a little bit because it's only going to happen some days of the year, some hours of the day, etc. But over time, as your renewables grow further, you're going to need more and more.
2: So as I was reading. The um, report you put out on the complexities of integrating RE into India's grid, where you write that the LCOE, um, like comparing fuels or energy sources based on LCOE isn't fully comprehensive because renewable energy has an added system level cost. One, could you talk a little bit more in detail about the system level cost of RE as well as So are you recommending that these are costs like which should be borne by the generator or was the intent mostly to just bring awareness to these impacts? Um, As I was reading it, I was curious about that. It's not just awareness. I'll come back to this after your
1: first question, but we need a way of quantifying it. So the short answer to your second question is, we have to quantify what those costs are. And they're not well quantified because the current policies are ones of socialization. Whatever it is, it's not signaled. We'll just put it into total costs paid by everyone on average. So one classic example of that is transmission. Let's say hypothetically, I need dedicated transmission lines. And the most extreme example of that is point-to-point. So in a point-to-point system, I know exactly what it costs. If we make an assumption that this dedicated line is only used or loaded partly because, for example, solar's utilization is only 25% capacity utilization factor or in Mm -hmm. India called plant load factor. So it's less than many other transmission lines and therefore it will be more expensive than your average, but you don't charge it higher. What happens today for most transmission is the total transmission for an area, whether it's state level or intercity for regional, there are different mechanisms, is total transmission divided by total kilowatt hours, and you just charge that amount. There are, of course, locational nuances and differences, but it's still a high level of socialization or averaging going on. So that's the first thing that we have to think about, more precise costing of the System level cost. You mentioned flexing of coal plants. It's not a stranded asset necessarily. I mean, the extreme example of stranded is where you're paying for capacity that doesn't get used. Here, it would be more like a spectrum because you're underutilizing it to its potential. So if I build a coal power plant and let's assume its efficiency is static, it doesn't change based on loading, and it has a certain fixed price of fuel, we know what its coal costs. And now I use the same coal power plant for 50% 50% of the time or 80% of the time. I'm assuming no coal plant actually runs at 100% loading over the year. It has to have maintenance periods, downtime. So let's say I have a plant that operates at 40 and another plant that operates at 80, round numbers. So my variable okay. cost in this hypothetical example is identical. My fixed costs are amortized on a base that's twice as large in one case as the other. So my average cost, Looks different. Now that that's the point of looking at costs on a portfolio basis, because if I only looked at the marginal cost, it doesn't change. And now you would say, hey, it's cheaper to run my RE. So that's a second calculation. If I either already have or have to have something else, quote unquote, other than the renewables, and now I say, my renewables can generate, let's pick a number. Rupees 2.36, which is the new low. It was discovered very recently. 2.36 is pretty cheap, and it's actually cheaper than the fuel cost at a bunch of coal plants. Not all, very location-specific, but a bunch of them. And so 2.36 reduces your variable cost out of the coal, which gets back down, which gets told to flex down or back down. It could have produced, but you're asking it not to at a grid dispatch level. But I'm still paying the fixed costs of those uh, coal plants that are needed because they either were already built and have to be paid off and or even if it's there, someone's paid for it, even if they paid for it in the past. So Mm -hmm. the way that you handle this is you need better signaling for what is the value of incremental supply into your mix at any given point in time. So that's starting to sound like an electricity market. It doesn't have to be a market mechanism per se. There are many types mm-hmm. of markets. Most people think of energy market, electricity markets as being energy markets. You could have capacity markets as well. But mm-hmm. more than that, you could even just say, I will take current bilateral contracts of energy and modify them to add a time of day adjustment for what it's worth to have so, most power purchase agreements, the bilaterals, are cost plus. In cost plus, all we do is we make an assumption of how much it's going to operate. So, there's a normative plant load factor, usually 68.5%, which is where they do their economics that assuming it runs this much, this is what you have to pay. And depending on the type of contract, if the state uses the power plant less, By their choice, maybe demand didn't grow enough or there's something else. They are still on the hook and obligated to pay the fixed costs, assuming that the power plant was available to generate, but it backed down due to no fault of the generator. So in that case, there's no risk, but the state is still on the hook for paying those fixed costs. So what we Mm -hmm. really need is a way to signal how much of what I need when. So if I really had a true nimble market. And at one extreme, it's an energy only market. One theory says that people should bid at their marginal cost, which means as long as I get paid more than my fuel, I'll be happy to run. Now, obviously, if I only got paid my marginal cost, how would I recover my fixed cost? So the assumption is in a uniform price market, the last market-cleared price is higher than the marginal cost of many of the cheaper units. So they get extra revenue, and that covers their Mm -hmm. fixed costs. That's the general norm. And it has some variances, but it often plays out. But there are limitations to that one model. But now think about places which have a lot of supply and very little demand. Prices Mm -hmm. fall. And in fact, in places in the U.S., Germany, you have seen negative prices for electricity. Now, just think about that. Doesn't that blow your mind? What it really is telling you, we've got temporary periods where there's just way too much supply. And please use it. I'll pay you
2: to use electricity. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. It doesn't
1: happen too much, but it signals one of the limitations that's going to become more and more stark because... The marginal cost of renewables is zero. Once you've built them, the incremental cost of running them is usually near zero.
2: I know CEA recently released a report which estimates the system level impact of RE to be about rupees 1.11 per kilowatt hour across four different charge categories, including the total balancing charge the impact on DSM per unit, standby charge, and extra transmission charge. And then, so that was rupees 1.11 kilowatt per hour. And then as um, the chair of UPERC, he referenced the CEA analysis of the rupees 1.11, but then added an additional charge. And he calculated the charge that results from that drop Um, in PLS to be rupees 1.05. Per kilowatt hour. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts so, on this. Essentially, I think it's
1: with have I'll go back and step look at the other side of the coin. Thank you. the The whole grid should have been a lot more nimble, with a lot less lock in and a lot less overcapacity. So, it's it's unfair to blame renewables entirely for this. The fall mm-hmm. in PLS. Uh, what happened was between 2011. In 2016, the growth in capacity of coal power plants in India was somewhere close to 14.5% annually. And in the same period, the demand for electricity only grew at about, I I think, 6.6% or something like that. And so there was a huge growth in coal power plant capacity. Now, That is the obvious reason why you have a fall in PLFs. Sure, renewables grew over this period, I'm going to guess, from just a couple of percent to 8%, somewhere in that range, or or 7%. So, yes, it did grow, but a lot more of that fall is because of just the sheer growth of capacity. So you have done a very poor job of signaling what capacity. So if I step back and I say the peak is your problem in india and the peak is in the evening if those two facts remain true then you don't want to add more solar because it doesn't help you for the peak not without a battery but at the mm-hmm. same time you don't want to go out of a new coal power plant as well and then say oops i or, or i needed this coal power plant now please pay me because i got to recover all these
2: fixed costs
1: that's also bad design
2: that makes sense
1: so the larger Uh, Failing was also that coal power plants just assumed that this static world with fixed costs and high PLFs that are predictable will continue forever. And when you're in a cost plus regime, the only thing you worry about is not efficiency per se, but getting an approval for your uh, rate base or your power purchase agreement. And that's not very good for the consumers either. So we do want coal power plants designed such that they can flex more and more. And in fact, a lot of the plants were asked to be so, but didn't really comply well or have failed to do it properly. And again, I'm not blaming any single plant or type of plant. Newer plants are better than older, but we should in general have been doing a much better job of it across the spectrum. So I also would counter that just because someone says, let's make up a number, 1.11 rupees a kilowatt hour. It doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that all of those costs are acceptable or should be passed on to consumers. Some of them should be borne by different entities as well. Because if we go back to the traditional form of regulation, once a a cost is approved, that it's not my fault, then it has to be borne by the consumers. My general, okay, so I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give the answer I told all my students. Um, the answer to any policy question is it depends. <clears throat>
2: but your
1: job is to now figure out what does it depend on, how, and why. And so to try and come up with one number is also misleading because that number will change by season, by time of day, what the rest of your grid looks like, how you price other factors, etc. At best, you can easily come up with an average number that reflects today. And both of those can and should change. And the good news is we're getting smarter about how we make our grid more nimble, how we flex down more without risking stability, how we add more uh, maybe storage or demand response. These are also getting cheaper. So the good news is I don't think that that's a a number is going to just be as bad as people think. The flip side is as renewables grow, it's going to displace obviously the more expensive coal first but at some point you're going to then get rid of all of your expensive coal plants at least at the margin meaning they won't operate as much it's unlikely that you'll dynamite them you still may use them but mm-hmm. less so but at some point you'll run out of these lower hanging fruit and you'll have to compete with variable costs of run of mouth uh, run of mine or pithead power plants but at some point even assuming it's quite cheap, even assuming it beats every single coal plant in the country, hypothetically, there's infinite transmission, <coughs> etc. cetera. Even mm-hmm. then, at some point, you will come to this next rung on the ladder which says, now what do I do at 8 p.m.? So you're going to have to start to include more and more storage capacity as well. My largest takeaway is this stuff is a process. We shouldn't get bogged down with any specific number because I can guarantee you Two years later, that number is going to be wrong. But we should be more cognizant of the trends, the crossover points, and what are any things that are nonlinear or discontinuous. So, for example, today, the variable cost to manage RE looks low, in part because I have surplus coal. But if I ever run out of surplus coal, then I'm going to have to make a call on what else do I invest in? Do I want to build a new coal plant? Do I want to uh, maybe build a gas plant? Do I want to build hydro? Do I want to build, quote unquote, an expensive battery? Because obviously if the batteries were dirt cheap, we wouldn't be having this conversation. A lot of so sense. in a couple of weeks, we'll be releasing our book on the future of coal in India. And you'll find a lot more nuance and depth in, in, in that book.
2: Oh, amazing. Amazing. Well, it, it will be released on the Brookings website?
1: Uh, well, the link to it. I mean, the publisher will have copies and we'll have excerpts on our done.
2: website. Yeah, I'll, I'm definitely going to get a copy. Thank you, Dr. Tongya, sincerely. And yeah, I'll keep you Thank you. Bye Thank you bye so bye. much.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode and do check out the show notes for more information on my guest. See you next time.